0: A bee! Why do they always try to sting me? I wish that they would just go away. Well, sadly, that's what's happening. The bees and other pollinators are going away. Pollinators carry pollen from one plant to another. When a pollinator lands on another flower, the pollen rubs off. The fertilized flower becomes a fruit or seeds, depending on the plant. Sometimes birds work as pollinators, but most pollination services are done by insects, including butterflies or bees. Unfortunately, they've been declining in record numbers over the past decade. And this has huge consequences for us all. If bees and other pollinators disappeared, we would lose a third of our food supply, and half of the fruits and vegetables on the shelves of your favorite supermarket would vanish. It would also drastically reduce biodiversity on our planet, and it would alter the food chain, starting with insects and other animals that depend on the plants that are pollinated by bees. So is there anything that we can do to save the bees? Is there a plan B, so to speak? In this episode, we'll look at some of the ways we can protect pollinators and our food supply. We'll dive into an example from the Nordic countries where the brown bee has been close to extinction. And we'll find out whether we've actually woken up to the seriousness of the matter. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast.
1: know that the the food supply is dependent on insects and pollinators to some extent. But I don't think people really realize how bad it would be if we really lost uh, the insects or the pollinators. That's kind of a big thing to take in on yourself. But to some extent, I do think that they know that there is a connection there. This is
0: Maria Schetzo. She's an advisor at Nordgen, the Nordic Genetic Resource Center. It's the Joint Gene Bank and Knowledge Center for Genetic Resources in the Nordic Countries. Maria is the co-organizer of the Nordic Brown Bee Network, a network of researchers and brown beekeepers. In a little while, we'll hear more about her effort to save the brown bee. But first, let's go to the United States. In an online Nordic Talks event organized by the National Nordic Museum in Seattle, Maria is joined by Melanie Kirby, who has been conducting research on pollinator ecology since 2007. She's a professional beekeeper herself. And in the United States, bees have been dying in the millions. In 2018 alone,
2: American beekeepers lost 41% of their colonies. I think it's definitely a moment of reckoning, right? (laughs) That, That people need to have where they start to really where the impact of it really hits home and globalization kind of counters that a little bit, you know, especially because we we can get cherries in the off season. They're coming from the different, you know, the opposite hemisphere. Right. And so we tend to think, Oh, well, these things are never ending. They're they're a given we'll get them. But, but when we really look at the seasonality of things, I think that's when it really hits. And as people do get that craving for more local, foods and local stories, you know, that produce those foods, we're going to see that shift. A world without pollinators wouldn't lead immediately
0: to famine. But fewer pollinators would mean fewer nutritious foods like apples and tomatoes. Luckily, as Melanie and Maria point out, there's a growing awareness of the connection between pollinators and our food supply. Maybe you've heard of the phenomenon colony collapse disorder, It led to big headlines in 2006, when beekeepers in North America began reporting major colony losses, where the adult honeybees simply died, almost overnight. But colony collapse disorder is not the main reason behind the current mass death among bees. Intensive agriculture, the use of pesticides, and climate change all threaten bee populations. And many plant and bee species are dependent on one another— Bee species are highly specialized. So if the plant that they rely on disappears, the bees go away. And if the bees disappear, the plant is unable to reproduce and then it dies out. All of these changes spell trouble for our hard-working friends, the bees. Back in Norway, Maria's home country, the brown bee is currently
1: classified as endangered. In areas where the brown bee has been native in the northern Europe, it's endangered because the other subspecies were more popular. And then we can ask ourselves if that is a problem. What if those bees are better at producing honey? Are they better at producing or pollinating? Are they nicer to the beekeepers? Like, Why do we care about this uh, subspecies? And um, I would argue that we do have a problem because we have reason to believe that we're losing the brown bee, we actually lose populations of bees that have unique combinations of traits that are adapted to specific local environments. And we are losing a great amount of genetic diversity that might be valuable, for example, when trying to breed for disease resistance or when bees will be having to adapt to uh, new environmental challenges uh, caused by climate change. Saying that animal populations are locally adapted It's quite trendy. You can say it about a lot of local breeds, but for the bees, there are more studies that show that this is actually true. There have been studies, for example, moving Ligostica breeds from northern Italy to southern Italy and vice versa, and they show that their hives did best in the region of origin. And we also have this experience in Norway, for example, moving bees from the East Coast to the West Coast, where the West Coast, the weather is more harsh.
0: Since the first Europeans set foot in the United States, the country has been a melting pot of different bee species from all over the world.
2: And this means that the native bees have had a lot of competition in the meantime what has happened right so now we've had bees that have um spread because also you know settler expansion as people moved westward and then we also have the industrialization of agriculture and and big ag really taking root here. And then we have, you know, very few operations producing a lot of queens. So even for us here stateside, the genetic diversity of our melting pot bees that we have is slowly narrowing. Our genetic diversity is narrowing within our honeybees. And so we're seeing that in tandem, you know, with um, compromised uh, forage, Um, whether that's due to pesticides or um, systemic uh, applications of, you know, seed coating and also potential impacts from genetically modified um, foods. We also have loss of habitat just due to, you know, the, the bigger cities that are evolving and we have shifting climate that's now affecting everything. So you, you kind of put this all in this cocktail soup and it's kind of a whammy after whammy that's hitting our bees. Right. And so there is, that concern as to, okay, how do we, how do we promote which bees are surviving? And there's people like myself, you know, I'm not the only one, but it's a growing movement. And when I first started getting into bee breeding back in 2000, it was right around the year 2000 when I started learning about queen rearing, but it wasn't until about 2005 that I really started immersing myself in the actual selective process of breeding. There was just a few of us that, that, you know, I could think of five of us. That was it. Now there's a growing movement and there's more people from coast to coast who are trying to work on building their local populations. And so in the us, it's almost like we started with the mix, like a big soup of stuff. and now we're tr- there are efforts to try and find locally adapted strains within that big soup mix, right? Whereas when you go to Europe and Asia and Africa, they started with their individual, ecotypes, right? And now they're starting to, you know, some places they're starting to mix. And so there's these efforts to try and preserve what they have so it doesn't get lost in the mix. According to Maria,
1: Nordic efforts to save the brown bee are beginning to pay off. The work we are doing in Norge is that we have this uh, Nordic brown bee network and we uh, host meetings yearly with uh, beekeepers and researchers to kind of connect them in the work to uh, do conservation work. Uh, But we have a a plan of action for conservation. uh, And it lists a background, and it has a a priority list uh, of recommended action, which goes into um, networking, breeding, recruitment to recruit new beekeepers, uh, research, uh, characterization. Like we do now in Norway, we are collecting uh, bee samples to uh, be able to determine the pureness of the bees that are held in Norway. Now Maria sees hope for the long-term survival of the brown bee. Over the last 10 years, there's been an increase in the number of brown bee, and we see a lot of public interest in, maybe they don't really necessarily know about brown bees specifically, but people are in general interested in pollinators and in insects and in general, in conservation work. And I think that's maybe part of this crisis that were made by the colony collapse disorder, that people actually gained awareness uh, that we have to care about the pollinators. And we have an uh, increase in people who want, we have the, uh, some places waitlisted to get new queens. And uh, yeah, so the brown bee is expanding. Uh, one challenge with Keeping the the conservation and keeping them pure is that the drone bees, they will travel up to 20 kilometers to mate with another queen. Uh, So we have uh, what we call pure breed areas. In Norway, we have two areas that are by law only allowed to keep brown bees. And we also have some private areas where the Brown Bee Association have agreed within themselves or the beekeepers that this area is only for brown bees. So that's one way of conserving them and knowing that in this area there are pure brown bees. And we also have in Denmark, they have this island, Læsø, uh, which also have uh, brown bees. And yeah, there are different areas that are um, set aside just to keep brown bees and to make sure that they are conserved pure. And uh, they will sell or produce queens in these areas that they can then sell to beekeepers in other areas.
0: while this is a complex issue, we need to get better at raising awareness. And to achieve this, it's important to combine scientific facts with a
2: compelling narrative. Storytelling is extremely important. Science telling is also extremely important. And even when we look at just the science of things, without context or without connecting it to an emotion, it can tend to just sort of you know, fall on deaf ears, so to speak, right? We have to make it meaningful in some way. And right prior to the pandemic, I was um, living in Spain, actually working on um, some bee research there as a as a Fulbright National Geographic Fellow. And part of my project there was to collect those stories from Spanish beekeepers. And um, there's the the Man of Bee Corps or what's called the, the Cueva de las Arañas, which is where there's this cave painting of you know, the oldest cave painting we know of, of of a honey hunter. And the Spanish beekeepers, what I found was that they were very, very proud of their heritage bee, right? And they that's all they wanted to use. And so um they they really, at least the beekeepers I interacted with, which were predominantly in Andalusia in the southern part of the of the country, took a lot of pride in their in their native bee and in wanting to preserve their native bee.
0: Another reason for the growing interest in saving
2: bees is the overall narrative of climate change. There's concern, there's alarm. We've, You know, changing climate is now a really, you know, it's it's something we can't ignore anymore. And so when we think about the global food supply or we think about, you know, how do we um, preserve biodiversity? It's definitely going to take everybody. It's going to take um the scientists it's going to take the beekeepers the ecologists the farmers the teachers you know and the storytellers to really sort of help maintain awareness but then to also create calls to action you know what can people do to
1: help maria thinks that people are ready to help i think especially when it comes to pollinators that. There is a public awareness now that we need to to help the to be save the bees. Uh, people know about it. People have heard about it, and I've been talking to people that don't really have any interest in agriculture or things like that, but they know about it and they might do it. And it's small things that they actually can do something about uh, if they have a garden that they know that oh we should keep some wildflowers available. Or people actually go and buy plants that are good for pollinators and uh, ask about it at their local garden place and you can buy these little insect hotels or there are recipes how to make them yourselves and I think especially here in Norway that's a big thing like people care about the pollinators and people put pressure on maybe farmers to leave some land on the side of the field for flowers for the pollinators and there is actually work going there. And I think it's easier for people to to do something than for the climate change, actually, that there are easier things for one person that you can help. You can buy this insect hotel and have it outside your house uh, instead of the climate change is a, uh, <laughs> is a bigger problem. And it's harder for one person to do something about it or feel like they can help. But I think actually with pollinators, we have managed uh, to to reach people and they they feel like they can help
0: melanie
2: agrees with maria when you're a single person you know looking at this larger you know immense crisis of you know, not only globalization, but also the, the issues that come with it. Right. Because there are some benefits to it, um, but there are also some, some major challenges. And as we see shifting climate, you know, how can we, what, what can we do? And I think it really comes down to reciprocity, knowing that you are of a place, even if you're just there for, oh, I'm only here while I'm in college or, oh, I'm only here for this, you know, contract work or whatever. There's so many little things that people could do in whatever community they happen to be in, whether they're a visitor or whether they're a long-term resident. And some of that can be just volunteering. Some of it can just be even picking up trash, but a lot of it is just rooted in reciprocity, in recognizing that we are a part of this landscape. So what can we
0: all do to save the bees? Let's hear first from Maria. I think,
1: in general, just to care about where your food comes from, check, um, buy from local farmers, uh, because often it's the small farmers, they maybe have more room for pollinators in the field, um, in uh, contradiction to these huge industry farms where you just have miles and miles of fields with no room for pollinators. Uh, so care about where your food comes from, care about everything you buy, where does it come from? Because to buy locally it means that you support your your local environment, but it also actually means that you support the global environment by reducing transportation and uh, reducing uh, factory industry that is can be harmful to the environment in general. So... Actually by, by caring about the environment in general, you also care about uh, the pollinators and the ecology, care about where you get things from, what you buy. Your, your money is actually a vote. You vote with your money, wha- how things are produced and how the world goes around. Uh, because a lot of times money decides uh, too much, in my opinion
2: yeah very true, Maria. Um, this is Melanie. You know money is a tool like other things, but it sometimes ends up becoming the sole goal and um and that becomes tunnel vision, right? And then you know there's there's actually a proverb, a Cree proverb that says, you know, when the last tree has been cut down and the water is poisoned and there's no more fish, only then will you realize that you cannot eat money. And, um, and so, you know, while it is a tool, we also need to realize that it, it isn't the end goal, you know, a lot of, a lot of the important things that happen in life are the process, right? And I'm a big fan of flower power. So I always like to tell people, you know, what's something you can do. You can plant more flowers because not only are they gorgeous, but they help to feed so many different insects and, and pollinators for sure. And it really does start from the ground up, you know, with our soil and our soil health too. And so I think as, you know, if we plant flowers and we see that they're not growing, then maybe it'll encourage us to go on this sort of path of discovery and go oh wow maybe now I need to learn about soil or maybe now I need to learn about this or that and and I feel like that's what pollinators have really been for me that's what beekeeping has really been for me they've really um, not only served as the sentinels but have really opened the gateway to the broader world of biodiversity and I just feel super blessed to be on this planet with everybody else here and and that life is a gift and we should cherish it.
0: But planting flowers is not enough. If we want to secure our future food supply, we'll need to do more to protect wild pollinators like the Nordic brown bee. Simply put, we need to step up our game, big time. We'll need to plant more biodiverse gardens and fewer lawns, ban harmful pesticides, create more nesting habitats, and support farmers who care about wild pollinators. Let's ensure that we have a plan B, together. Be sure to follow Nordic Talks on Instagram and LinkedIn. we will get the latest information on upcoming events, new podcast episodes, and much more. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening.